Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 through 10. Hear the word of the Lord. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. Let's pray together. Father, we we are desperate for you this morning. Lord, if we've walked in uh, assuming more about ourselves or more about you um, than we should, Lord, we just ask that you uh, would just strip us this morning and make us uh, the kind of people that are ready to hear your word, that are ready to seek your face that are are ready to deal with the hard circumstances of our life with the truth of the gospel, God. I pray for those in here that are hurting and and maybe don't even know why they're here this morning, but somehow they showed up. I pray that you would comfort their souls this morning and show them that there's a way to live through Jesus. And so, God, we just pray that as we launch this series today, that you would give us an understanding of what it means to be made alive. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So guys, we're, we're starting a new series today called Made Alive. It's going to go for probably five or six weeks, and, and, and really what we're going after in this, kind of the, the tagline is that we're looking at a theology of conversion. So what, what does conversion mean? Conversion means, you know, it's like when, when uh, I think it's John chapter 5, 42, talks about crossing from death to life. That's what conversion is. And we're just going to look at what the scriptures say about what it means to be made alive in God. Who does the work? Who responds? What does it look like? And so we're going to be looking at several scriptures over the next five or six weeks. And my hope is that when we finish this, that we will have a biblically robust understanding of what it means to be made alive. And that it might encourage us uh, to seek uh, and pray for uh, the salvation of those that are all around us. But also help us remain more secure in what God has called us to. So that's where we're going. The the idea uh, actually comes from the scriptures in Ephesians chapter 2. Two verses 4 and 5, and the scriptures say this, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, that's the motivating factor for God, love. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, in other words, we had nothing to offer, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. We're going to see what it means to be made alive by God. Here's the big idea of our sermon today, that The eternal love of God comes before our achievements and outlasts our failures. It's amazing that God sets his love on us before the foundation of the world. And that comes before all the things that you knocked it out of the park on this week. 
and all the failures that you had this week. And so no matter where you've come from today, the love of God is for you. And so uh, that's where we're, we're going today. And, and our hope is that we just have a more deep understanding of that. You know, Megan, my wife, was a teacher for several years when we first got married. And uh, one day, you know, she had assigned a, this writing assignment to her sixth grade class. Uh, you know, they moaned and groaned about the prospect of such an atrocity that their teacher would actually assign them work to do. Uh, but they completed the reports and turned them in. They were geography reports about different countries in the world. And she was particularly impressed uh, with one girl's work. Um, she was a teacher's kid. You know the type, right? She, you know, she'd just done a really good job on the report. And uh, Megan begins to, to start reading about the report on Lithuania. And uh, she noticed some particular vocabulary in the report that seemed just out of reach for an 11-year-old, okay? And so uh, she does what any teacher would do, Google it, right? Google it. If it seems too good to be true, it might be. So she begins to Google it, and sure enough, there it was, Wikipedia, Wikipedia had straight up copied this little girl's work. I'm not kidding. Straight up copied it, except Wikipedia was a little smarter because Wikipedia changed every fifth word. Amazing, right? And so Megan, you know, confronts the, the little girl and says, hey, um, you know, did you maybe do a little research on the internet and maybe copy verbatim a couple websites? And the little girl's like, no, what are you talking about? And then she reaches out to the mother and the mom, like, begins to accuse Megan and, like, saying, like, what are you talking about? Like, my daughter's brilliant, you know, and, and starts getting all frustrated and defensive. And, and, and you guys see where I'm going with this. The, mom, the, the daughter and the mom, you know, had kind of collaborated for her to plagiarize this work that wasn't her own, to, to take credit for something that, that she, she didn't do. And, um, you know, this, this story is a caricature, just kind of a picture of what you and I are all tempted to do. It's, we're tempted to take credit for things that we don't do. And we're a little more subtle than straight up plagiarizing Wikipedia, but we're, we're, we're tempted to particularly take more credit for our salvation and our coming to Jesus uh, than, than we've done. And that's what I really want to talk uh, about today. So if you're a Christian in here, um, the story of your salvation probably sounds maybe something like this. You know, well, I, you know, I heard the gospel and, uh, you know, it, it seemed like pretty good news to me. And so, you know, I, I responded, um, I repented, I began to, to follow God. And that's kind of been my story. And it's been a little rocky, but I've been following God ever since. And that's where we start when we begin to tell our stories of how we've follow Jesus of how we've been converted from death to life. That's how we start. It's like, you know, I heard the gospel and it was good news. Well, the scriptures lead us to believe that there's more to our story than that. That there was more going on in your life and in your heart before you ever responded to Jesus. And the implications of understanding this give us great comfort as we seek to see others become faithful followers of Jesus and as we seek to follow Jesus in all of our life. We're born taking credit that, that doesn't belong to us. So I just want to talk about a few things that come out of Ephesians 1 with us this morning. So I'll just go ahead and show you my cards on where I'm going. I just want to make three points. The love of God, the first one is this, the love of God goes before and beyond everything that we do. That's the motivation for God to save anyone, is His love. The doctrine of election is a mystery to everyone. Okay, we're going to talk a little bit about that because it's in this text. And that God calls us to faithful living under a sovereign king. 
That's what God calls us to do. So let's dig into that first one. The love of God for sinners goes before and beyond. So I want you to picture this. Flip open to Ephesians 1 if you've got a Bible. I want you to picture this. You know, there's this struggling church in the city of Ephesus, this global city that's super complex because it's the crossroads of the, you know, Asia Minor. I mean, it's just all of these cultures. It's kind of like Gwinnett, right? It's kind of like Gwinnett County. There's all of these super complicated things because people have come from all over the world. They've got all of these backgrounds. And here, Paul and his companions are seeking to plant a church that proclaims the one true God, that Jesus saves sinners. And so it's kind of complex. And so Paul has left Ephesus. He was there for several years, probably at least three years. And he's, he's left them, and he's writing a letter back to encourage them. The first thing, church, that, that Paul wants to talk about to encourage the church in Ephesus uh, is this. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's blessed us with, with every spiritual blessing, verse 3 in Ephesians 1. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That we should be holy and blameless before we did anything. In love, he predestined us for adoption, for relationship, that is, with him. As sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he's blessed us in the beloved. Now that's a lot, that, that's like a Paul sentence, right? Like he doesn't waste any words on it, right? I mean, like everyone counts, right? And it is so meaty that we can't, we can't nearly delve into all of the implications of it. But what I want to show you this is this, is that it was really good news to the church in Ephesus that was struggling that God loved them before he, they were ever lovable. It was, it was such good news to them. You know, things could have been better, but it, it wasn't a surprise to God that they were struggling in Ephesus. And he chose them before the foundation of the world. In other words, before he made anything in Genesis 1, guess what he decided? That those that would belong to him, that he would love them no matter what, and he would do whatever it takes to save them, to carry them to completion. He would do whatever it takes before you developed a trophy shelf of achievements or before your mom and dad knew you. Before anything, he made a decision that you're his and he'd do whatever it takes. He predestined, he made a destination for your soul before you could ever try to work it up yourself. He made a place for us that we wouldn't remain spiritual orphans. He, he predestined us to adoption as sons. So, so he knew before the foundation of the world that we would not follow God, that we would sin. And so plan A for him all along was to send Jesus to redeem us and to restore us into relationship with him. So, you know, think about your week. Maybe you were treated poorly this week by someone that you work with. Or maybe a boss spoke ill against you. Something you really didn't deserve. Maybe you were made to feel worthless in a relationship this week. It's not fun, is it? Or maybe your marriage is really hard this year. 2018 has just been a really, I mean, just a really tough year for you. Or maybe your soul just, just can't seem to find joy. You know, you don't want to you don't want to admit it, but maybe you're, you're kind of depressed right now. Just, you just can't seem to find joy. You're, you're seeking Jesus, but it, it's just it's the feelings of joy are just not coming to you during this season. God wants you to know one thing. Before the foundation of the world, he made a decision to love you. 
that he would do everything to make you his forever. It's really good news. It's really good news that it's supposed to anchor us. And you go on to, to, to see, okay, how's he going to do that? Ephesians 1, 7 through 10 just says this. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. So he's saying, like, listen, we've got to deal with this sin issue that you and I have. Like, God does not just look over sin because then he wouldn't be just. Like, he, there has to be some type of payment, and either I pay for it or Jesus does. For us to be forgiven, there has to be some type of, there has to be some type of payment made. And Ephesians 1 says that, that according to the riches of his grace, that he lavishes us on it. He doesn't just kind of just, just give us just enough to get by, but he gives us ex- extraordinary amounts of grace because we needed to follow Jesus. And this was God's plan A from the beginning of the time to be generous with grace in order to empower us to follow him with all of our life. Now we read that and that's, that's like really good news to us. That's the first thing that we have to understand before we, we get going in what it means to, to be a follower of Jesus and to, and to respond to his gospel and to seek him all the days of our life is to know that it was his plan to make this happen from the beginning of time. Now we get into some, some nuanced and difficult discussions to have, okay? So we're going into the second point now. It's this idea of the doctrine of election, okay? And it's a, it's a mystery to all. So you read in, in verse 5, in love he predestined us for adoption as sons. Then you, you go on to read in verse 11 where it says, uh, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Now, what do these verses describe? They, they describe this idea of a theology of election or predestination. Now, um, it's the first move of God in the salvation of a sinner. So, let's just say that, that you were not really interested in God, okay? And then you begin to become interested in God. God began to start wooing your heart. Like, I, I just remember reading the Bible as a kid and it meaning nothing to me. And then reading it as an older teenager and it being like fountains of living water. Do you know what I'm talking about? Nothing in me changed. I'm sorry that you don't. Maybe, I'll, maybe you'll get it in a second though. Um, nothing, nothing that I did changed. I was reading the same things, yet God was doing something on the inside. He was wooing my heart. He was drawing me in deeper to himself. Now this, this, this phrase, if you've been around the church for any time, it's been a divisive phrase. It's been a divisive theology uh, for a long time. And, um, you know, there are lots of Bible-believing Christians that land on kind of both sides of the fence with this. So I'm, gonna, I'm actually going to dig into it. So if we hadn't been in controversial enough topics the last two weeks, I just said let's just stay with it and keep going this week. So before we believe in Jesus, God must open our eyes is what he's saying. Like we, we can't open them ourselves. There has to be a work that God does to open our eyes. And this comes from God's choosing, regenerating, or making alive power that he puts inside of us to make us alive, to wake us up. Now, the place that we all jump to when we hear this is this. You know, I think about my grandmother and my grandfather who have went on to be, um, you know, went on to, to pass away. I think about the, uh, the funeral, the first funeral that I ever did of one of my students who, um, you know, basically had, had an addiction uh, and it led to his death. And, and I think about never hearing 
the phrase, Jesus is Lord, come from their mouth. And it's really sobering, isn't it? It, re- it really is. And, 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 and we see that there's a, a dilemma, right? Because it, it troubles our soul. Because this, this doctrine informs us that because it's up to God to do a work in us, that it seems like He doesn't do the work for everyone. And that really bothers me, right? I mean, listen to this. Here's the dilemma that we all face. Now, whether you embrace this doctrine or you don't embrace this doctrine, here, here's the thing, okay? You have the same dilemma. Like the doctrine of election does nothing to this dilemma other than give you a little bit of understanding in the mystery. Here's the dilemma, that God desires that people will be saved. We hear this in 1 Timothy 2.4. Listen to this verse. God desires all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Or if that's not good enough, 2 Peter 3.9. He doesn't wish any should perish, but all should reach repentance. Okay, now I get this. They were written to churches, and so he's talking about the folks that are in those churches. But, I mean, I think we kind of get the heart of God in it. The God, Jesus loves sinners, right? He came to seek and save the lost is what he came to do. So that, that's, that's the, the first kind of point of the dilemma that we're building here. The second one is this. God has the power to save people. We believe that because we've seen people who are far from God begin to follow God, haven't we? And it's this beautiful picture. You know, people that weren't even... Church was not even on their radar, and they start following Jesus. It blows our minds. You know, I think about Matthew chapter 19. With God, all things are possible. And here's the third part of our dilemma. God does not save everyone. Jesus says in Matthew twenty-two fourteen, 14, many are called, but few are chosen. What do you do with this? I mean, I think we have to surrender to this place. We have to ask this question, you know, why does God not save everyone that he can? And here's, here's the God's honest best answer that I can give you. It's a mystery. Like, like I have no idea. But, but I do know this, that Jesus is so good, and I don't deserve anything from him. And the question a lot of times that I want to ask is, why not God? But the question a lot of times that God pushes into me is, is to ask this, why anyone? Why anyone? And Isaiah 55.9 becomes a comfort to me in the midst of this tension. Where he says, Isaiah says, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, this is, he's quoting God here. So are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Okay, so now I want to I dig even a little deeper. And I want to I kind of put us um, kind of on the hook here to figure out how we really interpret this truth. Because, you know, whenever I was, um, whenever I was a, a young Christian and I first had read about this, it really troubled my soul. And... Um, and I kind of came to this, I kind of came to this conclusion as I was wrestling with God that you know what? Here's the reality. I would have never chosen to follow God. I had a plan for my life, and it was not this. Okay. Can I get an amen? I mean, it was not. It was not to preach to anyone. It wasn't. It wasn't to uh, to lead people to Jesus. It wasn't to lay down my life. It wasn't. It wasn't to do any of that. It wasn't to go to Bible college. It wasn't to go to like six seminaries. Now you know it wasn't any of that. I had a plan for my life, and this wasn't it. So God must be real, and he must work. 
because I would have never done this, and I would have never been equipped to do this. So let's look at kind of three possible interpretive approaches to this. The first one is this, what I'll call hyper-free will, okay? And this approach says this. It looks to the places in the Scripture that say, uh, that, that, that emphasize to the detriment of other places of Scripture that it is our responsibility to choose God, to follow God, to reach up and grab God. That's what this approach says. You know, it, it focuses on the truth to say, if you confess and you believe, you'll be saved. It's a great truth. It, could, it, it, it focuses on the, the truth that says, whosoever will may come. Great truths of Scripture, but not the whole counsel of God. You know, we've got to live in that and really believe that. We do have to confess and believe. And God does desire for people to be saved as we've looked at. And there's this other kind of subtle nuanced approach to this theology too that says, you know, maybe God just kind of sets up this whole thing and he gets the tape playing about what's going to happen in life and then he kind of fast forwards and he sees what's going to happen in the future. And then he, he kind of remembers it and then he re rewinds the whole thing and then he creates the world. And then, you know, when Ryan chooses to follow Jesus, God knew it was going to happen and that's what it means to be predestined. That idea of foreknowledge, you know. But the thing that I've realized about that approach is, is this as well, is that it puts humanity on the throne and circumvents the depravity of will. It assumes that there's something inside of me that is not there. Ephesians 2, chapter 4, while you were dead. While you were dead. The last time that I checked, a dead person can't do anything for themselves. I mean, think about it like this. As, as I was wrestling through this truth, uh, as, a, as, a, as a young man, um, I was in this place where I kind of believed in this kind of hyper-free will approach. And, and, and it, here's where it broke down for me. You know, I took myself and began to think about one of my unbelieving friends on my, on my sports team. And, um, and I asked this question, you know, okay, how did I come to faith? Well, okay, I, uh, I believed upon Jesus. Like, that's how anyone would come to faith. Then I asked myself another question. Um, how, so how did I believe upon Jesus? Well, I, I repented. You know, I, I turned from my ways and, and I turned back to Jesus. Okay, well, how did I repent? Uh, well, it was because I saw that I needed to be forgiven for the things that I had done in my life. That I was a dirty, rotten sinner. Okay, why did I see myself in need of forgiveness? Okay, well, it was because, because I came aware of my sin. At the end of this road, you realize one thing that you ultimately have to believe that there's something special about people that follow Jesus. That there's something special in them that they have an ability that their neighbors don't. You know, that, that I have an ability to kind of see this is the better path and, you know, and Jason on my baseball team didn't. And here's what I know about that. That's not true. That's not true. God was doing something before I ever responded. You have to believe... If, if you land in this camp, you have to believe that, that you're a little bit smarter, a little bit brighter, a little bit more enlightened than others if you, if you kind of land in this camp. Okay, so now I want to tell you about the other side of the ditch. So that's one side of the ditch. It, it has it focuses on some scriptural truths at the expense of others. Well, I want to show you the other side of the ditch, which focuses on some scripture, scriptural truths with, with, at the expense of the other ones. I'll call it this, hyper-determinism, okay? Uh, and this is equally as dangerous, by the way. 
Uh, it says that God is sovereign and in control of everything, so nothing in my life matters. It thinks about verses like this. No one can come to me unless the Father draws me. John 6.44 And so we ask questions like this. Why pray? Why share the Gospel? It's all predestined. Who cares? Why do I have any motivation to be an evangelist? Why do I have any motivation to be obedient? Why would I do any of it? It's all predetermined. I don't have any control. And we, we respond like that. And I, I was actually in this camp my first year of Bible college too. Uh, and I did one of the most embarrassing things I've ever done. I, my mom and I were talking one night, and she was a brand new believer, and she said, you know, Ryan, I just think we ought to pray about this. It was a particular situation. or I think it was actually our next-door neighbors. Uh, their, uh, their family was in a bit of trouble. And she said, we ought to pray about this. And I said, Mom, why even pray? Why should we pray? God knows it's all going to happen. Why should, we, why should we even pray? Why should we even engage in this? And I began to see the tears kind of come down my, my mom's face, and she was crushed. And I began to bruise my mom with a misinterpretation of the Scriptures. Some of you have had people that have done that around this truth to you, okay? And I'm sorry about that. They've mishandled the Word of God. Um, they haven't done it justice. And uh, it's been foolish on their part. So, so what is, what's the approach that I think is, is kind of the the tension between those two that God calls us to, I'll call it this, faithful living under a sovereign God. Faithful living under a sovereign God. Let me ask you this. What if God is big enough to choose us and us also choose Him? What if He's big enough for that? What if He's big enough to move in us before we move toward Him? What if it didn't undermine the free will that He gives us and it didn't undermine the sovereign plan that He determined before the foundation of the world? What if that was possible? Would it give you more security as you begin to walk out your life in Jesus? I think that it would. So let's, let's spend the rest of our time talking about how to walk that road. So the Bible paints us this picture of what it means to be lost and I think it's helpful for us to, to, to understand you know, how to walk down this road with Jesus. And it comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 4-6. through 6. If you've got a Bible, I'll flip back a few, a few pages to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I'll read it for us. And I want you to hear how the Scriptures describe someone who's not following Jesus. And this, this, may, be, um, this may be some folks in the room today. Um, but, I, but I will say this. If Jesus is, is of remote remotely good news to you, it's probably because God is already done doing a work in you. Because Jesus, the, the, when you think about Palm Sunday, when you think about how Jesus came riding on a donkey, um, slain on a cross, all signs of weakness that he would portray his entire life, that the cross would be the symbol of hope for Christians, the ultimate sign of weakness, when you think about that, it changes you because Jesus gives us another way. Here's, here's what 2 Corinthians 4 says. In their case, those who are not yet followers of Jesus, the God of this world, meaning Satan himself, the enemy, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Jesus Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. And listen to this. For God who said, let light shine in darkness. When did he do that? When he created the world. 
He said, let light shine in the darkness. So the same power that He used to create the world, to fashion it, to speak it into existence, is the same work that He does, to listen, listen to this, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. The same work that Jesus does to create the universe, to separate light and darkness, land and sea, that work is the same work that He does in someone that follows Jesus and sees the Gospel as truly good news. It's beautiful. So, so do you hear the, the language here? That, that sin has blinded us all from seeing anything other than ourselves as God. I mean, let's think about it like this. Uh, I heard Tim Keller use an example about what, it, what it's like for a lost person to come to faith in Jesus. This is about 10 years ago. And he said it's kind of like this. Imagine that the whole world or those that are not following Jesus, are running toward an eternity apart from God blindfolded. Imagine that, okay? So if I had a blindfold, which I meant to bring one, I would have it on right now. We'd be running, right? Because we're lost. So we're running, you know, and we're blindfolded and we can't see anything, but all of our senses, all of our other senses seem to be intact. And so we have a confidence that's just kind of, uh, we have a confidence about where we are in life, even though we really can't see where we're going, Okay. And so imagine that, that everyone's running toward, toward an eternity apart from Jesus. And, and then there, there are these Christians over here that are calling out, Hey, Ryan, you're headed the wrong way. There's hope. Turn around. You don't have to keep going that way. And I'm over here running, and I'm saying, No, I'm good, man. I'm headed to the beach. I can tell it's getting warmer. You know, and you're running. And you're like, oh, I'm good. I've got this great place I'm going. And then you're over here saying, no, man, there's still time. Turn around. There's forgiveness for you. There's hope for you. You don't have to act like none of it's true. And then you're like, no, man, I'm good. I'm over here. I don't need Jesus. I'm kind of doing this thing on my own. And then all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit unties the blindfold, okay? It, and the Christians are over here still doing the same thing. And you're still running over here. And all of a sudden, you begin to see, my life is not headed. I'm not going to the beach, okay? My life isn't headed where I think that it's headed. And God unties the blindfold, and all of a sudden, what those people over there are saying is like good news to you. You're like, okay, I don't want to be going that way anymore, and they're telling me that I can turn around. And so they're calling out the gospel. And all of a sudden, I turn around, and I begin to say, yeah, I think I want that. And I begin to walk. So what is that? What happens right there? That's repentance, right? It's an about face. It's a turn around. I begin to walk toward that truth and embrace the truth that, that Jesus really is Lord and I'm really a sinner and I don't deserve him. But that news that those people are telling me seems like really good news. And I begin to respond to the gospel. Church, that's what happens in this doctrine of election where God unties the blindfold of our eyes. And we begin to see for the first time in our life, that the truth about Jesus is really the best way to live. Now, that's what happened to me. Maybe that's what happened to you. I even want to speak to the kids in here. You know, you're going to hear a lot of truths from your parents. And they're going to, they're going to be faithful to share things with you. But there'll, be, there'll have to be a time in your life where you do the same thing. Where you say, okay, look, even though I know all these Bible verses, I'm still kind of running away from God. And so I've got to make a decision to, to really follow him and to, and to turn back toward God. And that might look more subtle in your life because you've kind of raised in this Christian home. 
Or maybe you're in here and you're not following Jesus as an adult and you just happen to show up today. You've, you've kind of been tacking on the Bible verses, tacking on the church attendance, tacking on the giving, but you're really following your own path. The Holy Spirit calls out to you and says, come. He woos us in through the gospel. He calls us in. God takes the blindfold off. This is what he does in anyone who follows him. So I think there are three, just three implications I want to share if this is true of what it means to come to, to follow Jesus. The, the first one is this. As Christians, we are more compelled to share the gospel than we ever have been in our lives. Um, so, so let's think back to the picture of all the lost people blindfolded running, right? It feels good. It looks good. I mean, we're, you know, we, we think we can see. We really can't. But when we take the blindfold off, we see what it's like. And so for us, a lot of times I think as Christians, we think that our role is to untie the blindfold, okay? And if we can't untie the blindfold on someone's heart and someone's life and cause them to turn around, then we say they're, they're kind of a lost cause. I'm going to stop sharing the gospel with them. I'm going to stop being in their lives. There's no fruit to be born there. But you and I know this, that when God unties the blindfold, man, I want to be the person that's reminding them of the truth that they could not see until God opened their eyes. And so I'm more compelled to share the gospel than I ever have been whenever I see that, you know, even this doctrine of election is tough, and, and even though God has to untie the blindfold, I, my job is to still call out the gospel through proclamation to actually say what Jesus has done and to call people to response, but also demonstration. My life walks in step with the truths of the gospel. I mean, I'm reminded of Romans 10, 17. For faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of the Lord. So God is, guys, God is so pleased to use you and I to bring people to faith. Have you noticed that? Like, like he's so pleased that he's kind of set this whole thing up where we have to proclaim the gospel and then he works in their heart to create faith, to create obedience, to create a desire to follow Jesus. The second thing is this, we are more gracious toward not yet believers. So we, we begin to, to really see and believe that there's nothing special about us. That it wasn't because I had this right set of circumstances in my life that I began to follow Jesus. I mean, you think about the Jewish people. They were poised to follow Jesus in the first century, weren't they? Poised. They, they had the Torah memorized. They were in Jerusalem. Jesus walked among them. Still unbelief. We are more gracious toward unbelievers because we know that only God saves sinners, that only God works in our hearts. And so there's no, there's no sin that, that kind of is outside of the bounds of the possibility of God's love being set on them and making them alive. And so we, like Jesus, rub shoulders with sinners and tax collectors who don't have it all together because we know that anything's possible with God. And so we faithfully proclaim the gospel. We faithfully live as God has called us to live among his people. And here's where I want to land the plane. We are more secure in our salvation. There is a personal benefit to you that God loved you before the foundation of the world. It's not just this divisive theological doctrine. There's a personal benefit to your devotional life. Think, listen to this from Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Scripture says this, and let us run with endurance the race before us, looking to Jesus. Let's run the Christian life. He's the founder and the perfecter of the faith. 
Some translations will say the founder and the finisher of the faith. He's the alpha and the omega. He's the first and the last. Not only of all creation, but of your faith. It all hinges on who he is to us. And, and, and how can we believe that? Well, it's this. For the joy that was set before him endured the cross. He despised the shame and is seated at the right hand of the Father. That he paid what it would take to finish the faith for us. To finish our faith in us. Now we have to cooperate with that. We have to call upon the, the name of the Lord. But he's faithful to never leave us is what he's saying. And that work that he's done in us, as Philippians 1.6 says, he carries us on to completion. This past weekend, I was in Tucson, and a, and a friend of mine that I had met on a trip to Israel uh, like three years ago, his name's Bob, uh, was telling us this story about his, his college-age his college son. And um, his son, uh, I'll let you put the pieces together here, his son uh, had been an irresponsible college student one night. You know what I'm saying? And uh, he was out with his friends, and he found himself incapable of performing normal activities such as driving, you know, or talking or eating or sleeping. I mean, he was impaired. And in his distress, he told his friends something that they couldn't believe. In his distress, he says, guys, get your phone and call my dad. Call my dad. I mean, so this guy is not in a great place. I mean, I don't know about you, but whenever I, you know, if I was not in a good place, the, the last person that I would want to reach out to is the people that have the most leverage over my life, which is my parents, right? But for some reason, this relationship was in a place where the son thought it'd be best to call his dad in his distress. And so they get his dad on the phone. They try to talk him out of it. They're like, this is a bad idea, bro. Call anyone else, not your dad. And because uh, they knew that his dad would be mad. And uh, so they called his dad. His dad answered the phone. His dad gets up immediately. His dad is uh, a medical professional. He has a surgery to perform in the morning. He gets his son. Uh, it's 3 o'clock in the morning. He picks his son up. Uh, his son is, you know, incoherent as they drive back home. And, and uh, you know, gets home. And mom is there as well. And they say, okay, let's go. Let's go lay him down in bed. Let's let him rest. Let him sleep it off. We'll talk about this in the morning. And dad says, no, 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 no. You don't get it. He's not going to be able to sleep in bed tonight because he's not going to be feeling well enough to be laying down. And so dad proceeds to set him in his own recliner and all night long take care of the son. Clean him up. Care for him. Be alongside him. And the next morning before his dad had to go to work, he'd slept none. His son came to him and he said, Dad, I don't know what happened. I can't remember it. But I, I just want you to know, I'm, I'm just sorry, Dad. I just, I'm an idiot. Like, I, I don't know. I just I shouldn't have done that. And his dad just simply said, I, I forgive you. Now, I share this story with you um, because you and I are tempted to think that there are places and times in our life when we cannot call on our Father in heaven. And the world around us tells us, call on anyone but him. You don't want him to know what's going on in your life. Call on anyone but him. And our Father in heaven is the one who sent his son Jesus to sit with us, care for us, and take care of us in our most vulnerable and broken places of our story. 
and we have this type of access, church, because he chose us before the foundation of the world. Because he called us to himself and he loved us with a love that's eternal. Church, the eternal love of God comes before our achievements and outlast our failures. That's really good news to us. Let's pray together. Our Father, we come to you and um, we just are grappling with these truths that are, that are heavy and, and thick and rewarding as we grapple with them. And I pray, Lord, that you would press into us this morning just the power of your love and how you do everything motivated by love. And, and, and why, God, we can't put all of the, the pieces to the puzzle together because your ways are higher than our ways and your, your thoughts are higher than our thoughts. We know this. That nothing that happens in this world is outside of the realm of your, of your love and care and concern for us. And the other thing we know is this, we can't see the whole picture. Lord, as one pastor said, if we knew everything that you knew, we would do everything that you do. God, we don't know it all. And so this morning, God, we, just, we seek you in the midst of our, just our finiteness, God. And we know that we can't, we can't explain it all. But that doesn't mean that your word's not true. So God, would you meet us this morning as we, we just seek to be faithful ambassadors of your kingdom, faithful stewards of the gospel. Would you help us live like those who've been redeemed by a king who's given us everything. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.